Hello and welcome. It's David again this week. It's recording on October 22nd. It's Thursday. Had some rain this week in Indiana. I think it's the first measurable rain we've had in quite a while. Brent's still in harvest mode. He's excited to get things wrapped up. So the guest uh, co-host this week is Jeff Young. Jeff Young, welcome to this outlet of AEI and AEI Premium. And, and your familiar name, familiar face. So thanks for joining us. Thanks, David. So Jeff, you and I have known each other for a while. We, our existences date back to Purdue. Tell us a little bit where, you, you're, where you're at now and what you're doing. I just thought of this. We're going to have to talk about hemp before the time runs up. So we'll, okay. we'll maybe save that to the end. So tell us a little bit about what you do and where you're at and what you like to yeah. think about. So when I finished at Purdue in 2018, I took a position uh, the following spring, so January, at Murray State University, which is actually where I got my undergraduate degree. And so I'm an assistant professor in agribusiness economics, and I teach things like ag finance and econometrics and ag sales. So, you know, pretty, pretty broad spectrum of ag business curriculum. On the research side, I am, David alluded to this, the chief economist for the Center for Agricultural Hemp. And so I look at different economics questions and field concerns from hemp farmers and hemp processors. You know, we have a semi-annual meeting at the Hemp Center. And so, you know, I'll get to chime in there and see what's on these people's minds who are on the front lines of the, of the hemp industry, you know, that's still young. And also that role is to be the editor-in-chief of the Journal of Agricultural Hemp Research. So we're getting ready to publish the fall 2020 issue, which will actually be our third issue, uh, second volume, in December, at least is the plan. When I get bored, uh, I'll talk to David and pick his brain and learn stuff. I'll also drive not too far east back to where I'm from, actually a couple counties over, and help out on the farm. My dad and my brother farm about 4,500 acres of corn, wheat, and soybeans. We just wrapped up corn harvest a couple weeks ago, and uh, looking like either this weekend or early next week, we'll dive into soybeans here soon. So I'll be back on the combine part-time when I'm not teaching or researching or meeting with students. And these aren't just soybeans. These are double crop soybeans, right? These are double crop soybeans. That's right. We cut the, we cut the wheat back in June, depending on what kind of day it was for the combines or the planters. Uh, you could look in the rearview mirror and see yourself being followed by the bean planter, which meant you need to speed up on the combine, but not too fast. Uh, so yeah, these are double crop soybeans. Genuine. This is a little uh, fun fact that Jeff and I share an affinity for and a history of double crop soybeans. And so I grew yeah. up, of course, in Southeast Kansas, which everyone thinks of Western Kansas as super dry. You know, we get 40 plus inches of rain a year there. Our climates are very similar. I think if you drew the, the longitude lines, uh, where you're yeah. at and where my family farm is, very similar double crop soybeans. I think it's similar for you, right? Eastern Kansas, we plant the corn super early, like end of March, 1st of April. Yeah. And, harvest that in August. And then there's a break. And then you do the harvest of the wheat in early June. And you try to get those double crop soybeans planted. It's interesting that I found another common ag economist who knows a lot about double crop soybeans. So fun trivia of these ag economists here. Another quick sidebar question. Teaching at a university, 
in the pandemic, are you in person? <laughs> are you online? Are you both? What's, how's that, what's that been like? For my one graduate class, there's only five students enrolled. So it's small enough that we can be face-to-face. Uh, the room's big enough. They can be spaced out. They are. The other classes, on the other hand, have anywhere up to 30 students in them. So a fraction of them show up and a fraction of them agree to tune in on Zoom. Uh, We're at the point in the semester past what would have been fall break. Of course, we didn't have that this semester. Motivation's a little lackluster as, as we're approaching the sunset of this semester. So more and more are opting for the Zoom option. You know, I had five out of 29 students in class today. So, you know, it was a good group. The rest were on Zoom, though, so I can, I can appreciate it. <laughs> yeah, it's been one of those years, right, where teaching college students for the last 80, 100 years hasn't changed that much, right? I guess we uh, added computers and, you know, learning modules online over the yeah. last few decades. And there's a quote, something about, there are decades when a few years of time pass and there are years when a few decades of time pass. And we're in one of these years where decades of changes are taking place and and you're in the sort of forefront. My son actually is in kindergarten and he was out for a cold and they were very worried about his situation. And they flipped the switch and he went to e-learner status. And so he could stay at home and learn from his iPad and catch up on his homework. He had to check in a few times throughout the day and, you know, never actually technically missed a day of school. So it was just sort of a weird existence that you couldn't have imagined that being a reality just a year ago. But I was going to say digital kindergarten just does not manifest in my imagination. (laughs) Yeah. And it's completely normal for him. So this idea that like he was home, I was talking to my grandmother today who I would have stayed with when I was his age and sick. And the idea of like, oh, he was homesick. He he wasn't full blown like out and and down and out. So, but he was out for a few days and super cautious. But the idea that it was very natural for him to have logged on, been a part of the class. So in his class, they have distance learners and in-person learners on a regular basis. He's an in-person learner. So he just joined the e-learning kids for the day, checked in a couple of times, did his work, submitted it, and good to go. So decades of change in about one year. So, yeah. all right, Jeff, getting to some some more substance, you know, right. a few years ago, two years ago now, you started the AEI Yield Project and- I have found this to be a super valuable project for myself, but also the other users and subscribers of AEI Premium. And what you do, I'll summarize this a little bit. I'll let you clean it up and clarify it is there's a lot of data out there and we all see these yield forecasts from all these private analysts and they come out here and there and you're trying to sort through all the noise where you went out using similar data, use the crop conditions data, which aren't being collected for the purpose of making yield forecasts. Of course, of course. But they give us a good idea of what's going on out there. You have a few models, an ensemble of what we've been calling them, sort of let's think about this methodology and this methodology and this methodology. What can we learn? And you do this on a weekly basis. One thing that's different that I don't see many other people doing is you go out there every week and you put a new dot on the graph and you show the history of your forecast and you write a nice thousand word summary as to what's going on. And I have to tell you, it keeps me grounded because I start off with trend of like 177 and then I start raising my forecast up or down. And there are several times this year 
to the up and to the down where I'm like, oh, it's a beautiful crop. It's going to be 185. And then I have to yeah. go read your article and you're like, it's at 182 or it's at 183. <laughs> and then on the other side, we had the Iowa storms and the drought and yeah. the drought, uh, the drought starting in July and the dryness into August. And I'm thinking, you know, we're going to go well below trend. And, and now we're sort of back at that trend level. So I find the constant benchmarking super helpful. We're not here to say that these models are going to be 100% accurate because actually it's an ensemble. So there's enough models out there that, you know, we know one of them is going to, two of them are going to be wrong at least, or a few of them will be wrong. But it's the idea of how do we help our mind move as expectations change? Mm -hmm. I'll let you provide a little bit of your take on the project, but also anything that you've observed from this year, you know, I, I shared a little bit of mine, this idea of I would have shot too high in August and then dropped too low in the last few months, but what are some things that you thought about this year? I would say what jumped out at me was the stability of the estimates. You know, I was kind of like you, you know, when things were looking good and expectations were going up, my nature, my tendency was to aim high, but it would usually be aiming higher than the models. And so my models would forecast, you know, an increase, but it'd be a small increase, like one or two bushels at the most you know, usually just a fraction of a bushel. And I would say, okay, well, maybe I'm being a little overly ambitious. Similarly, when, you know, dry conditions would set in and people's expectations would plummet, so would mine. But then, you know, the models would kind of mitigate my enthusiasm, if you will, and would say, well, yeah, it's going down, but only by half a bushel this week with the range of quarter of a bushel to three quarters of a bushel and half is in the middle, say. So, they kept me grounded as well. That was, that was definitely something I learned. I will say that a lesson that I learned was history seems to matter, which how in the world is that something I've learned that should be something I already expected? I'll give you an example of looking at crop conditions. Each model adds a point to that chart of what are this week's crop conditions, and based on previous years where we saw crop conditions kind of looking like this this week, what did the yield end up being? And so that was the projection it made. But what the models didn't account for, and something I would like to look into you know, down the road, would be, okay, yeah, that's what the crop conditions look like this week. But what did they look like last week? Are they different from last week? Or you know, are they holding steady? Did they go up from last week? Or when the derecho hit, after you saw a noticeable decline week after week after week for a while, especially in the corn conditions, it was starting to be fully realized. And the people reporting the conditions started to notice a little more clearly, oh yeah, there's, there's some damage. And the models picked up on that too, but it just took a while for them to adjust. And so perhaps they would have adjusted more quickly if that change had been accounted for as opposed to the current level. So history matters is definitely a, a lesson I learned. And I would like to learn a little more thoroughly, I think. I don't know how much it matters. No, that's that's good. And I like what you said earlier about the timing. I guess there's timing and magnitude. At surface, those seem to be the same. And when you split that up a little bit, I guess I got a little more, it piqued my curiosity because I focus on the magnitude, right? I was always shooting a little bit too high. But I think the other thing that I fall victim to is all of a sudden, and I get on Twitter, right? This is my, I get on the Twitter. The original and, peer review. <laughs> the original peer review, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just look at the comments. Yeah, yeah. 
I get on there and like all of a sudden the corn crop is amazing, inevitable. It's going to be, uh, and so of course. But in reality, when I look back, right, the model was sort of slowly plotting this increase yeah. over time. And in fact, you and I trade emails. It increased the corn model had increased by about half a bushel or so or four tenths of a bushel for several weeks in a row. And then mm-hmm. there was this sort of this, the corn crops, awesome story, this narrative building after the fact. Yeah. Sort of after the fact. And, and so my expectations jumped, but really I overshot and my adjustments came late. <laughs> so I was late and too high. And so the, the model was helping me sort of see this picture of, okay, things are getting better. Things are getting better. Mm-hmm. And so the timing and the, it reminds me of something I've been working on, uh, no one saw it coming is something we hear a lot, right? Oh, no one saw this coming. It's something that we sort of take for granted, but there's usually someone actually who sees it before I do. It's never true to say no one saw it coming, but it's really more true of, well, who saw it before me and who saw it after me? It's all relative. We're going to do a, an, another output about lessons learned, sort of Ooh. getting in the deeper nitty gritty of this process. So I'm looking forward to that. So I appreciate your two lessons here. You also have a recent article I encourage readers to go look at. Correct me if I'm wrong. It's how many forecasts could a forecaster forecast if forecasters could forecast forecasts? Well done. Well done. (laughs) I love the title. Tee this up for us a little bit and tell us what you're thinking about how that that came together. Yeah. So that, that was actually a fun idea I had on a Thursday morning. And the Friday morning, the next morning, was when the October WASD was going to be released. And I thought, I am against the clock, but I bet I can do it. And then that night, I got it to run. and uh, Or it was a Wednesday and a Thursday, maybe. But it, it was the night before, basically. I got it to run. Emailed you the next morning and said, look, WASD drops in like two and a half hours. But I had this idea. And so the idea was this. And I only did it for corn. I, I just finished doing it for soybeans, actually. So we, maybe we can have a follow-up on that. But I did this for corn. That's the article you're referring to. The idea is, okay, our first WASD for the year comes out in May, right? June and July, unless just something wild happens, are going to be pretty much the same as May. And they were identical this year. Yep. But every, everyone's anticipating that August WASD. Okay. So come September say we've got the may WASD, and oh before the may WASD, we have trend so you yep. at least trend yield early early in the year so that's like our first estimate is all right following the trend this is what yields should be close to then may all right well now we have trend and the very first expectations of the usda then august okay we've got the first expectations of the usda then they're refined and honestly, a little more relied upon estimate as well as trends. So now we've got three numbers. Well, then September happens and we got four numbers. Each number that we get should be telling us something. And so here I am the night before the October WASD drops and I'm thinking, okay, I know trend. I know May WASD. I know August and September WASD. I bet you I could get pretty close to either the October WASD or the direction it's going to go because we saw that huge number 181.8 or something for corn in the August WASD. Well, then like within a matter of days before or after of the August WASD, we had the derecho. 
And then we saw a big downward shift in the September WASD number from the August WASD number. And so I thought, okay, if the model saw that happen, if I design a model and it sees that happen, it could probably estimate what October should look like. So I know the things that I know. Can I use them to inform something that I don't know? And the answer is yes. So I ran the model last minute and it projected a noticeable, but still modest decrease from the September WASD to the October WASD. And that was kind of what happened, even though it was more modest of a decrease. So the model actually overestimated by how much it would drop, but it did drop. It still dropped. One of the things that I learned this year, and and you helped me with this, two things you really helped my thinking with. Well, we emailed a lot about the duration and was like, I think you told me like 17% of the U.S. corn acres are in Iowa, <laughs> right? Yeah. And if there's a 10 bushel hit to the U- Iowa corn yield, that's 1.7 bushels that come off the national yield. And we, you and I like really had to wrap our minds around that because yeah. it was hard to move past this, this idea that Iowa had this giant storm and the Iowa yield was going to get hit by this hard, but the overall national impact wasn't that big. The other one that really... And you inspired my thinking on this, this, this chart that I've been using this a lot, it's the air in the WASD August report and the September and the October. And it's sort of this interesting story where we get really hyper-focused on a bushel or two movement in corn between August and September, September, October. And history would suggest it's very common. I mean, even in soybeans, right? The September WASD is not super accurate. I mean, August is super interesting. The August is about as good as the uh the may May, the may one right which is like we're just starting to plant the crop and so i guess as you move through the growing season right there's two things that unfold there's less uncertainty about the growing conditions so Mm -hmm. the forecasts get better because of that and then second of all we're just collecting the usda is collecting more and more data and we're moving closer and so we know a lot about the october because i guess october tells us a lot about november because we've tightened the parameters up right we've scale this up quite a bit. So that's a lot of a lot of good stuff to think about. Well, Jeff, any other forecast network questions that you're thinking a lot about or you got on your mind before we wrap this up today? My favorites are obviously the the corn and soybean yield questions. I, I pay attention to those definitely. I have an unfair advantage by looking at the data for, you know, a couple hours a week and running models that update my expectations. But just the same, I, I think it's fun to watch the consensus too, to see you know how the other AEI people are thinking. I also like to look at the price forecasting questions. As you saw, the corn, the December corn question just closed uh, because we, lo and behold, broke four dollars a bushel before December. Yeah, I think it, people were kind of expecting that, but that was that was not when we were at three twenty. <laughs> Well, yeah, that's true. They weren't always expecting it. It's been fun to see those long-term questions, right? Because you yeah. see your expectations ebb and flow. And so we were talking about 425 last winter at the Outlook meeting. And we asked about August 1. We get to 425 before August 1. And that question closed unceremoniously a big thud. It wasn't anywhere. We were at three 320 in the beginning of August. Yeah. And in August, Brent and I were talking about going to below $3, which was going to be terrible. And, and now yeah. here we are at 4 And so we've closed $4. It's hard to believe we're back at 4 It's been a wild ride. But this is why we do what we do, right, Jeff? 
it's to help cut through the noise, guide our thinking and help us find the signals. So that's right. Well, Jeff, thanks so much for joining us today. Look forward to the rest of your contributions on the yield side as we wrap up 2020. And then of course, uh, everything else that has still yet to come. So Jeff, thanks so much. And uh, thanks everyone for listening and uh, we'll catch you next time. In the meantime, stay curious. Thank you.